something like 85% of conversations in English are held with no native speaker present. And I think Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Words of Limits. Today, we have Hedvig. She is a language and learning coach, neuro language coach and learning language learning enthusiast. Uh, she says that she's a big believer in the power of diversity. She uses her coaching training to help instill essence that Whatever skills and experience you bring to the table are useful, and I love that. <laughs> and that curiosity, creativity, and an abundance, mind, abundance mindset can be found in everyone. As a language and learning coach, Hedvig helps her clients to find their inner creativity and problem solving to face their communication challenges. And she imagines an inclusive world where everyone, regardless of background and circumstances, has access and opportunity to learn the language skills they need to succeed. So this is a wonderful introduction to her. <laughs> and Thank you. Well, welcome. Welcome to be here. Thank you, Maria. I love being here. I'm excited. And me too. Um, and um, I wanted just to start asking you about your work. So you are a neuro language coach and just please tell us more. What does it involve? Yeah, so um, I think I'm going to answer this question uh, because you can Google it, right? You can find out what a neuro language coach is, but I'm going to answer it kind of from my perspective and how I, how I found it. Um, and how I came across it, it was um, about, no, I know exactly when it was, actually. It was the Easter of 2019, so two, two and a bit years ago. And I was at a stage in my career where I had, I had realized that I really wanted to work with languages. Um, I studied uh, linguistics and psychology at university, but Since then, I had been kind of working in other things in other fields. And I, I had, once I'd realized this, had this realization about what I wanted to do, I just had, I had this urgency about me um, because I just, I just couldn't, I had to get, I had to get started. And um, I had earlier that year, I took uh, a TEFL course. So a teaching English as a foreign language course. And that kind of gave me uh, the realization that okay this is actually something that I really enjoy doing and I definitely want to do it um and at the same time I didn't love the idea of um kind of telling people what to do mm -hmm. um so I had this sort of idea I thought oh but what if instead of being a language teacher I could be something more like a language coach And this was around Easter time and I was just about to go off on, on holiday with my family. And, um, but I had this idea in my mind and I thought, okay, when I get back from holiday, I'm going to, you know, check this out. And I thought I'd had this brilliant new idea. Um, and then, you know, a few days later, I came back from holiday and I started Googling it. And it turned out there was a whole world of language coaches, different types of language coaches um, out there, including a qualification for neuro language coaching. Um, which I then ended up uh, taking and getting a qualification, um, which is, in fact, um, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is the only kind of accredited um, language coaching certification that's out there yeah. at the moment. Um, it's accredited by the uh, International Coach Federation. 
Um, so it actually involves a little bit of um, kind of life coaching um, principles and methods. But then on top of that, you have um, neuro language coaching, um, which was developed by Rachel Paling, uh, who's a fantastic human being and uh, just very inspirational. She's doing a lot of interesting work as well into kind of neuro, um, neuro heart education actually is the, the new thing that they're working on at the moment. Um, I don't know a lot about that, but what I'll say about neuro language coaching um, and what it is, is that it's, it essentially combines three different principles together beautifully. Um, it combines language learning mm -hmm. um, and language learning and language education um, with kind of life coaching, goal setting um, and, you know, powerful questions, um, coaching questions that um, a life coach might ask you, like, you know, how will you get to your goals? And, um, you know, every coaching conversation is going to be different. So it's built around conversation. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, um, uh, neuroscience. So kind of how we, what we know about how the brain learns and how we learn best um, what we know for sure is that we learn best in a uh, semi-relaxed environment. So if we are super, super stressed about something, when I'm not ready to listen to anyone if I'm in a very stressed state, right? I'm not going to listen to, uh, I'm not going to be open to new ideas. I'm not going to be feeling curious about the world around me. I'm just going to be in a closed no, I need to get out of this stressful situation kind of thing. And so many people have had these bad learning experiences of some kind, whether it's just embarrassment um, of some sort, or it's uh, genuinely feeling kind of ashamed or humiliated by, by a, I don't know, an ineffective teacher or by other students. Um, and uh, so it's about essentially using what we know about the brain to uh, learn most effectively and make the right connections, make sure that those connections are building on your existing knowledge as well, um, because we know that building connections is how we learn stuff. We don't learn in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a summary. I hope I didn't rant on too long, but... No, 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 no. It's... <laughs> I'm sorry. And so... It is connected with, um, because you were mentioning life coaching and neuroscience. So I am thinking that, that it involves a change of mindset, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, well, it depends on what your mindset is already, um, I would say. Um, but yes, absolutely. Um, so what uh, in, in your experience, what mm -hmm. mindset the student tends to have? So when we have bad experiences of in a, in a traditional um, education setup, we, we have all these bad teachers or these frustrations and these failures. So mm -hmm. we tend to go with a mindset that is not very learning inducive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, what would be the, the right one? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I guess one mindset is, well, one mindset that um, I think is quite um, relevant to talk about here is kind of having an open mindset versus a closed mindset. So if you, and most of us probably do start off with a closed mindset about most things because that's an easy way to structure the world. It feels safe when we know that, this is the way something is and here are my expectations about how something's going to go. Um, for example, when you come into a, a teacher-student relationship, you might have certain expectations about, oh, the teacher's going to give me homework. Um, the teacher might assess my level of, um, of the language that I'm learning. Um, and then you can have a bunch of other expectations, right, about what, how that's going to go. Um, and, and it can be expectations around, okay, they're going to tell me to do grammar and I hate grammar. I'm, you know, terrified of having to tell the people whether it's going to be, uh, 
avant, avait, or whatever it is, <laughs> um, using a French example there, but, yeah. um, you know, you're going to have expectations about the things that you, that you enjoy, but also about the things you don't enjoy. And um, the, what, I, what I try to instill in people is that the open, kind of opening up that mindset is about saying, okay, you don't enjoy looking at grammar tables and, you know, working through, uh, okay, if it's new, then you say avant. Uh, that kind of thing. I completely understand that. We don't have to do it that way. Um, and there are a bunch of different ways of doing it, uh, different ways of learning something. Um, and if this kind of structured, uh, you know, grammar table, uh, rote repetition thing is not what you enjoy and it just makes you kind of close off and go, Ugh, I hate it, yeah. then we don't have to do any of that. What interests me is the, the, the idea that it, it requires that the teachers are more flexible and resourceful as well oh, yeah. for the students. <laughs> Um, because yeah. in general, even if as teachers, and I have my background as teachers, as a teacher, you need or, or you try to accommodate the student and be flexible and try to, well, I get to know my student and then I do the, the, the best uh, I can for them. Mm. We tend to have a, a way of teaching. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you do, yes, of course. You do it your way. And then yeah. the student st sticks with you if that works for them or they feel frustrated and they leave. In, in this environment, I'm talking about one-to-one -one and for teachers who, who have created their own business. So, But when you are in school, you cannot really escape that True. <laughs> situation. And then I, get, I, I think that that brings some frustration and, and the student ends up believing they cannot learn or that there yeah. is something wrong with them so it goes back to training the teachers as well in a way that well you, you really yeah. need to find the way that works for your student yes and and I, I mean I appreciate that you say that because that, that it it takes a different I think it does actually takes different kind of mindset from the teacher as well yeah. um absolutely because um sometimes I I actually come into a session and I'm not sure what we're going to be doing um <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah uh and and you know because I'll have prepared a few things and I you know so, had some ideas for what we can what we can cover but then if the student or if I actually prefer to use um coachy or um learner rather than student but if the you know if the learner comes in and says oh today I, I really you know need to focus on this presentation or you know if they if they are completely um uh you know if they are distracted by something else sometimes it's best to just go with what you know where that um attention is going because if their attention is somewhere else then they're not going to be learning anything about whatever you know Uh, pronunciation exercise you thought we would do today kind of thing um, their attention is going to be somewhere else anyway um, and that actually comes back to the the neuroscience of it is that learning you know you kind of have to follow certain it takes a certain recipe to get the learning to actually stick in your memory what is the recipe Uh, I mean, the way I said it makes it sound like I have some secret source thing. That's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, to put it simply, I guess it's about, um, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but I, I have studied some psychology and, and um, neuro language coaching. And, um, you know, I guess it takes, um, it takes attention. Um, you know what, actually, one, one thing that I think is better than me just rambling off what I think is talking about a model called images, mm -hmm. which is it takes intention, motivation, uh, and let me see if, I've, if I remember my, my uh, lesson right. Um, what's the A? Um, attention, sorry, we just talked okay. about that. Uh, G is generation, 
So they have uh-huh. to be able to produce something. E is emotion. So being oh. able to connect emotionally with, with the thing they're learning. And the S is spacing. Right. Oh, so okay. spaced, you know, uh, the, the uh, you have a lot of um, different apps and tools for doing things like spaced repetition. Okay. Okay. I get it. So intention, motivation, attention. I, I was taking notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Generation, emotion, and spacing. Um, yeah. I, I, I really love this. And probably, if, if because we know each other, you probably are not surprised if I say that emotion for me is the most important one. But that's just I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> no but no I think you're right actually because without emotion you're not going to have that intention you're not going to have the motivation or the uh, you know you're not going to uh, be paying attention to the thing because yep. um and I think that goes back to stress as well if you're feeling stressed if you're in an emotional state that's not ready for learning then everything else is out the window and um thinking about the the brain and the neuroscience what is um, the best or optimal emotion or state? How the learner needs to be in order to just, oh, you yeah. know, absorb all this information they want to learn. So imagine like a seven-year-old child mm-hmm. playing and having fun um and i'm actually gonna um bring up the example of um Ma- maria montessori who did um uh y- you know she developed this way of uh, allowing children to learn through play rather than through mm-hmm. lessons and blackboards and uh this kind of slightly more traditional way of uh student teacher um authoritarian um perspective Mm -hmm. um I went to Montessori schools myself for a few years uh, while I was growing up and I I genuinely think that's the reason that I learned to enjoy maths because uh they have the most fantastic kind of maths games um and they're very they're so visual and tactile and you get to play with them and you get to really see the numbers in front of you um in a way that I don't think um, people, children in normal classrooms actually get to do. Well, I, I hated maths. I used to believe yeah. I was really, really bad at maths um, until I started helping um, children. I was volunteering for an organization, an after school thing, and I had to help the, the children to, to do maths. And mm. they had you know, it was tactile. So there were, um, I don't know, 10, no, maybe seven, eight, but they had these things that they kind of puzzle things. And I was playing yeah. with them and I started to get excited. Yeah. Maths. And I'm like, but why didn't I do this? <laughs> why didn't they <laughs> help me with these? Numbers was this abstract thing that I couldn't really make sense mm-hmm. of and touch and for some people maybe for some people may work but for some other people like me it yeah. wasn't like numbers was like I cannot do maths and, and in my 30s there you go <laughs> yeah and how do you think you can make languages tactile because the idea of oh. them being tactile appeals to me just a, a, a very you know touchy feely kind of person <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, oh that's such a good question I, my the first thought that popped into my head was just um fall in love with a native speaker because oh, yeah. then it's, it's very tactile uh it's very you know uh but I guess uh the caveat being that the native speaker shouldn't speak too much of whatever whatever other language you speak and that kind of thing um but I genuinely I I, you know I've heard that one before and I think I think it's true and it's probably the reason that I I 
I still only really feel like I speak English and Norwegian um, because I haven't, my relationships have only been with people I've spoken English with actually. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. I think that's the interesting part that may be missing um, in the language learning um, mainstream <laughs> situation. Mm. Like there is this, um, I feel that we keep the language still very abstract. Yeah. And unless you have a personal experience that you have a partner, you have friends, or yeah, maybe uh, unless you are living in the country where you make the language real for you, yeah. like that, that doesn't, like that shouldn't be a requirement, I believe. So mm. I find that, yeah, we keep the language in this very abstract kind of box. Yeah. That it doesn't really make sense. You know, it's, you're learning something like it's, you're learning a science kind of thing, but it is not real. Very often it is not real for the, for the learner. It's kind of, yeah, it's in a book or it's in mm. a... I actually, um, I think that when you're, and I, I, actually what I'm about to say, kind of really, I feel really strongly about this is that I think part of learning a language is about kind of owning that language for yourself and kind of developing some sense of this is my language now. Like I can, I can have, I have a little piece of it now and it's mine. And um, there is this wonderful um, teacher on Twitter actually um, called Kate Clancy. Uh, I don't think she minds me promoting her a little bit, but uh, she's a she's a teacher and she posts poems by her students. Um, and these are students learning English. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are refugees who've had a lot of terrible experiences early on. And they are learning kind of how to how to how to make the English language theirs but also how to express themselves, how to, um, you know, they're, they're writing in ways that probably no native or native uh, English speaker <laughs> would, uh, yeah. would write, but it's still in their beautiful, unique way. Yeah. So whatever ways, and I think that's going to be individual for everyone, but in whatever way you can, you know, find some sense of this language being yours. Yeah, and you just mentioned the magic word, <laughs> which is poetry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and the idea of owning. So I was, um, I am a firm believer that poetry is one of the best ways to learn and uh, to learn a language. When we are talking about a foreign yeah. language, that for me, I do not like to use a foreign language. I, I I'm trying to use just non-native because foreign mm -hmm. stays, it always stays in, it's not, it's not mine and mm -hmm. it will never be, it will always be a foreign language. And I, I do not like that concept from the beginning, right? So it, it has to be, I haven't been born in this language, but it can be mine. I can own it in the same, in the same way. Mm -hmm. And poetry for me, after having been working with my, my students with poetry and you know in Spanish for a few years it it combines all the ingredients for success in a way because it is bringing the yeah. emotion it is bringing the something that is relevant and has been experienced by the student you cannot write poetry normally like well you can try but you cannot <laughs> really write poetry about things you haven't experienced because yeah. the the baseline is well from, you have to write from your senses, from your body, from, you know, and actually pain. <laughs> yes. And when you were saying what's tactile and how do we make language tactile? I actually, my first thought was metaphor. Yeah. Oh God. You know, and that's something we use a lot in poetry or people use a lot in poetry. I write some poetry now and then, but, um, but yeah, what metaphor. And, what language do you mm, write poetry? 
most I think I have to say exclusively no I have written it in Norwegian but I, I've written a lot of poetry in the English Ooh, or you have to share it at some point I'm not going to put you on the spot <laughs> I have a kind of a secret um Instagram page that I don't share with people I just post stuff <laughs> well it's too late now I, I will be asking you for that <laughs> uh maybe I, I'll share it with you okay privately yeah um, okay uh, so yeah is and that's the thing like it that makes the language poetry makes the language tangible and metaphor and for me it's like I think that we don't only use metaphor in not only in poetry like I think we're speaking yeah. metaphor most of the time oh, yeah. and and it's not only in the ads and you know it's, it's like we use metaphor express and to connect with others to make the other person actually relate with what we are saying yeah and symbols is is for me it's all about metaphor and symbols we have our symbols in our minds or in from our experiences and that is what we need to find a way to to express in every language yeah and and when you're talking about emotion uh there's a reason that we use so many metaphors when we talk about emotion is because sometimes you know it, like, when we say we're heartbroken it it can literally physically feel that way and same with you know having butterflies it's it's all physical feelings that it's impossible to describe without some level of uh yeah some level of a kind of metaphor or a, or a different almost like telling a different story on top of the emotions you're feeling And yes, and that brings, as you were saying that, I was thinking that is quite of a universal language because even mm -hmm. though, well, there are some universal metaphors and some others that are more um, group related or tribe related, more cultural related, but in general, mm -hmm. there, there are so many that are the same for everyone, like heartbroken, I think that would be pretty generic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, there is a level of universal language that has to happen. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So and I mean, you know, what, what would you understand if I'm, if I'm walking down the street and let's say I'm, I'm Italian and I say, oh, I'm eating my socks. <laughs> my shoes are eating my socks. <laughs> I well, I would be confused. I, I yeah. Okay, so let's just start there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I would think. So the image that is coming is that you, if you are eating your socks, that means that you have I don't know that you have been walking a long time and that you know I I my experience of that <laughs> is that this well you know when you are walking and the socks keep going down and and go under the yeah the sliding into your shoes yeah I that's yeah. the image that comes to mind so I'm thinking well maybe that person has been walking a lot of yeah or something Am yeah I close enough? So, so the it, it literally it's much simpler than I think you've you've overcomplicated it oh yeah well that's yeah. Um, that's my tendency <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not a metaphor it's just well it is a metaphor uh obviously I'm not actually physically eating my sock but it is uh it's an Italian expression or idiom I guess um for when your sock is sliding into your shoe if you have very short socks and the sock the heel of the sock comes sliding into your shoe so your sock yeah. is about to fall off okay well there you go <laughs> and and I just think I when I heard that I just I just and I still it still makes me laugh um when I hear it but I just think it's beautiful it it makes it makes sense to me I mean It's yeah. not, it's not a direct, uh, you know, it's not literal, but that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, it is. And there are so many, yeah, so many images that we can relate to. And probably the key is uh, relating to, mm. right? Because why are we using languages if, if not to, to make the other person understand our message in beyond their brains 
yeah. <laughs> kind of really experiencing it and, and right you think now I'm wondering do you think that using metaphor is about helping other people to understand it or is it for ourselves mm. well I cannot think like I I never I I well, I shouldn't use never, but I normally think that there is more than one reason for things. Mm. There is never just one. Um, and I think when we are talking about communication and conversation, probably if I choose to use metaphor is because um, I want to convey my point, you know, mm. and I am taking you into account. Yeah. So I, I, I want you to understand my point and I want to express my point in the, in the, most you know clear way i would use metaphor for two reasons to express and for you to understand yeah yeah i i I had i had intuitively i felt like metaphor might be mostly um mostly for myself but maybe that's just me maybe that's just how i express metaphor and um Maybe I'm just that self-centered. No, well, no, no. But I, I understand. So, let's say, why, when you write poetry, what's the process like? What do you have anybody in mind, or so? Why do you want? Why do you write poetry? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Okay, I write poetry almost as a type of therapy. Mm-hmm. It's to get stuff out, and sometimes it's it's di- it's uh, addressed to someone. Mm-hmm. Other times it's uh, it's simply for myself. Um, I think a lot of the times actually addressed at a specific person. And... I mean, <laughs> yeah. And why is it public? Why is it in that Instagram account? And not just in your notebook. Uh, that's a very good question. I literally started it like two weeks ago uh, oh, wow. on a whim. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's a good question. I just felt like, um, well, I, you know, sometimes I think we all, we all think we're little geniuses, right? We have some thought and we you you know some some words that fit nicely on a page and we think oh my god nobody's ever written this before and it's amazing um so I think it's a little bit of an you know partly it's just an ego trip of me thinking oh maybe my poetry is quite good and maybe some people like it but I think partly it's also uh that I think people might kind of take a bit of inspiration from it um I don't write it for anyone else but when I have written it and I look at it and I think oh maybe somebody else needs to hear this so I think that's why I I pushed it published it yeah yeah and I think that's you have a, a very you made a very good point I think um I do believe that we write poetry very often just because we need to 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 put things out like it, mm. whether it's an emotion a memory that there is an urge that is beyond us just to, to put something out there let it be let it be expressed mm-hmm. i think that there is the the human need of being expressed <laughs> and that but there is also this we know we are not alone we know yeah. we don't live in isolation. We know we are part of something. And I think that it is completely related. We need to express and also we are mm. aware that this product of our expression is going to be consumed, is going to be seen, is going to be read or heard. And we yeah. know deep, deep down, I believe, that's just my belief, but I, I know deep down that that is going to have an impact, that we relate that because we have read something from poetry from some other people and sometimes we have read poems from a, a super famous poet and sometimes we have read a line from a random 
person and that has touched our heart and maybe has changed our lives. Yeah. And we know that that could be coming from anywhere. So I think that we, yeah. there is something beyond our intellect that tells us, no, you have to put this out there because you never know. Yes. <laughs> you are going to inspire. <laughs> and, you know, I know you're a, you're a big fan of spirituality as well. <laughs> and, um, you know, there is, you know, because as I was speaking and as I was saying that, oh, you know, maybe it's a bit of an ego trip. I just want people to like me or I want people to like my poetry. But actually, um, it's almost, on the other hand, it's almost egocentric to think that nobody else has had my experience right? Uh, lots of people, millions of people have had the exact same experience as me. I'm not so special that I, you know, whatever I write and whatever I uh, create is going to be interesting only to myself. Chances are, you know, lots of other people will um, feel a different, have had a different feeling, a different experience, uh, or a different, uh, sorry, similar experience or similar emotion. Exactly. And that ties with languages what I think is the emotion and the experience is common but the way it, ex it is expressed yeah. and communicated is unique yeah yeah and in every person so it is unique but it is valuable for the other person that that person may need to read this this unique experience that is coming from you because maybe for them that is the the related the relatable one and not the one yeah. that Shakespeare wrote <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> true yeah. so that makes you feel connected that makes you feel less alone yeah yes absolutely I think that is so important is that knowing uh that even if the words are different you're not alone in in your experience uh and we have this strange thing in kind of western culture of this i don't know some people call it like the snowflake uh hypothesis or whatever this idea that everyone is so unique and so special and um but actually imagine if everyone was incredibly unique and special then we would all just be alone like little satellites floating around in space with yeah. no kind of connection to other things or no similarity with other things which would be super depressing yeah <laughs> like I wouldn't I, I wouldn't like to to live there like mm. the idea is connection right we are we are all kind of connected with each other and with everything that is around yeah. I, I think um I want to ask you something that is that you mentioned in your bio and that brings mm. us back to language okay um so you uh, so my question is why do you think language learning learning language is so important or why do you think it is a, a, an element um or ingredient for success mm, yeah um what, what happens with well, languages you know uh if i'm being very uh kind of obvious and cheesy i would say it's transferable skills <laughs> you get okay <laughs> you get a lot of it's boring right but it's you get so much from learning a language that you don't think about when you're thinking oh i'm gonna learn spanish um but then you get what you get when you learn a language is you get you, you kind of build uh, you get a different perspective on the world mm -hmm. um, and of course you can get this in other ways but language learning is one of potentially the easier ways of doing it more okay. tangible ways of doing it uh, cheaper ways of doing it potentially <laughs> you don't have to travel to learn a language yeah um, and to gain new perspectives um, you know you build empathy you build um, uh, problem solving skills and creativity and all of this has been you know scientifically proven as well it's it's not just me saying oh yeah it's super cool 
Um, well, you could say it, and I would say yes. Like sometimes we don't need yeah. these papers to say, yeah. to say that we are right. <laughs> We're working with languages. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um. And why empathy? Why languages help helps us to? Yeah. Okay. This one, I'm not sure if it's scientifically proven, but well, it I have. I, I trust you. <laughs> I have. I have. Um. I have a sense that. Learning a language forces you into uh, humility in a way, I guess. And I feel like humility and empathy go slightly hand in hand because it forces you to feel quite useless for a period of time when you, you can't express what you need to say and you don't understand everything and you're in this kind of... Um, you know kind of like baby phase of just yeah. feeling like you can say a couple of words here and there and and then the rest just goes way over your head yeah. um and I think building that humility and knowing that okay I have to rely on other people and I have to um kind of appreciate that um I'm not getting anywhere without uh other people's kind of perspectives and um inputs Uh, even if you're just learning through an app or through reading or whatever, even if you're not directly working uh, with other people, you're still having to rely on the resources that other people have created. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, more importantly, I think the, the, the kind of perspectives that other people have as well. You can't come in with your own perspective and say, no, I think, I think we should say it this way. <laughs> Uh, because here, here I am, and I'm just I'm just learning this language. No, you have to kind of listen to how other people do it, and then eventually, at some point, you might start, for example, producing poetry, and then you can kind of bend the rules, change the rules, break the rules as you want. But you still have to kind of learn the rules of this other way of thinking um, that is probably different from how you've learned it originally. Totally, I, I love that. And what, so, yeah, I just want to ask you, Maria, what do you what do you think about um, empathy and language learning? Uh, yeah, well, I think that um, yeah, it's, it's very similar to what you were saying. Is that for me is um, you know we are we we can empathize with someone when we understand what that person is going on what what yeah what that person is going through sorry mm -hmm. so um so when you only have one learn one language when you have never learned a language when you have never tried to communicate with someone in a language that you don't master that is a set of experiences that you have never had. There is a level of, um, <laughs> a low level of vulnerability <laughs> that mm. you have never experienced. Um, and so it's just even without taking into, into account the perspective, the different perspectives that are obviously massively important, it's just the lack of experience. Like, and I, I am grateful that I am. I have. I, I was born in Spain, where I have to learn another language. Yeah, you know, just to to leave <laughs> in, in in other countries. But when that doesn't happen, I think that yeah, as I said, this lack of experiences, this lack of vulnerability, this mm -hmm. like this lack of I need this language or another language just to to survive to relate to other people. So that is something that is missing. And when that is missing, and you are talking to someone who has been experiencing that, there is a lack of empathy. I cannot relate to, to your vulnerability. I cannot relate to your struggle. Mm. So that for me, that would be at, at the very basic level, the lack of experience. Yeah. I can see that. And actually what you mentioned about uh, vulnerability is yeah. so important. Yeah. Do you think that uh, a language learner that is not willing to be vulnerable 
can succeed in the language, can really learn it. They would make they'd be making it a lot harder for themselves. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna say never, but I think <laughs> it. Uh, oh, that would be. I I just feel uh, I I feel almost physical pain from trying to imagine learning a language without feeling vulnerable because essentially that's about trying to learn a language without making mistakes which is um i maybe i tried doing that for a little while when i was um just started uh, at my first uh, english speaking school when i was 15 and i basically just didn't say much or many words at all because i was terrified of making any mistakes and sounding like i didn't speak english um even though i had been speaking english for a, for a few years i still just was terrified of making mistakes uh it didn't go you know at the at one point i just had to speak and i just had to make mistakes and uh, you know and that's it is very important so it is this fear of making mistakes that i think in our culture is, is something that we have been like infused since we are little like there is some a problem mm -hmm. with making mistakes I don't know where that comes from but also uh the idea that you mentioned um what was it yeah you were worried or concerned about what the other person is going to think about you yeah I totally relate I, I get it and I would say that the majority of us we are in these societies kind of what the other person thinks is probably more much more important than what you need to say mm -hmm. <laughs> which is crazy yeah like, what kind of expression are we having when we are more concerned about what the other person is going to think than what i need to say yeah it's true I think a, a lot of communication gets um, kind of blocked by that, actually, because you just end up saying what you think other people want you to say or saying all what's expected. And it's like, oh, yeah, I love that artist. You know, when you're a teenager, it's all about, you know, like what actors and music and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and when we are communicating in a different language, and we are more concerned of what the other person thinks of us, how do you think that limits our expression in a language that is not, that we don't yet master? Oh, well, I'd like to think that um, if as an adult, you're learning another language, um, it might be easier to let go of that um, fear mm -hmm. and to be able to just express yourself um, with I guess less of a filter or you know less of this idea of well here's what I think I need to say or I think I should yeah. say or think is expected of me um, yeah. but I'm sure there are people who probably have that filter throughout their life and um that sounds exhausting to me oh it, it really does and um I find that you can really rarely connect with the other person if you have that filter super high but I am mm -hmm. thinking about languages so for example you and I we we have one native language and it's not the one that we are communicating which is English mm -hmm. all the time right we are expected to communicate in English in a certain way because mm. we live in a, an English-speaking country. So is that limiting the way you express yourself? Oh, my God. This is a... <laughs> okay, this is a much bigger question than I know, what you I know, I <laughs> know. <laughs> but what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay, is it... Sorry, just so I understand the question. So... The fact that we are speaking a language that's not, you know, kind of a first language, hmm. um, is that limiting our expression, how we express ourselves? Yeah. So are we 
what I would say is that I would put in the focus on the other person who is listening to us. Mm. And we are trying, we are communicating in this language, which is not our first language. This kind of relationship, this kind of situation, this kind of trio, this is the language. <laughs> this is our <laughs> ourselves with our first language. Yeah. And then there is the other person who is expecting a certain level from us or expecting expecting a certain way of expressing express uh, expect the people yeah. expect we expect things from people yes. <laughs> on the nationality their language their accent all these things is it limiting okay so this reminds me of a conversation i had with a client about um about actually being in uh let's say a work setting where none of the people who are in the room have English as their first language. Mm-hmm. So everyone's got English as their second or third or fourth language, right? Um, and this this person was saying how their English essentially, they felt that their English was getting worse with being in a non, like non-native English sort of environment. And it sort of touched on something because I thought, yeah, my, the same happens to me. My English get worse, you know, whatever that means. Yeah, worse. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> it's important. Yeah, um, but you know that the, there is, um, on the one hand, okay, so it, it maybe it gets less uh, British or less kind of native or less mm-hmm. kind of conforming to whatever regional dialect you're maybe more used to conforming to mm-hmm. but actually you know in a in a strange way you know you can be in these um and by the way I think so um, something like 85 percent of conversations in English are held with no native speaker present and I say native with quotation marks but yeah. uh some 85 percent of conversations in English um but uh so so actually i i don't know if i wonder if not having uh you know sort of a native uh or a you know as as we have now we do have this idea of a listener who might be anyone um but we don't have a native speaker right here and does it it changes i think it does change the conversation or it changes the way we express ourselves um maybe for some people that means expressing yourself more genuinely because you don't have that filter of the regional accent for example or the 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 Britishness or the you know you live in Ireland don't you yeah yeah you know like the the Irish like um uh regional uh slang and all that stuff and you don't have to kind of add anything um to kind of fit in with that language uh, or that uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe you and I have a more, uh, maybe a more open expression. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think, it, uh, I think we do. Um, because I was just comparing, as you were saying that, um, I was comparing how I speak with native, English native speakers. And when I speak with non-native, like in general, whatever country they are in, mm. and my English is <laughs> my English feels more real when I am in this non-native situation mm-hmm. because I feel that these other people they have their quirks, quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> they have their way. <laughs> they may be using words that I do not know. But I remember being in groups and I remember learning words. I, I learned words in Polish when I was, I was once working in, in an environment and I was working with a group of, group of uh, Polish people. We were communicating in English all the time, mm. but they learned words in Spanish that I was just using because I, I felt freer, just, yeah. you know, because I, and I understood that they were willing and open and able to absorb my words because they already had a second language. Mm. so that was kind of implicit like we we know we know that this is not our native but we are still communicating so I, w- I felt more freer whereas when I am as you 
mm-hmm. we're saying when I am with native speakers, I kind of try to to fit the norm, fit the, this magic abstract rule that changes depending on where you are. <laughs> <laughs> where you are. Um, so yeah, and and what is interesting to me is that I felt with native speakers, I feel there is a there is a hierarchy. Mm. They are the authority, and I am not. <laughs> Mm. Where and so I cannot own the language. You know what? As That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Whereas where I am in a group with non-native speakers, yeah. we are all equal. So I can bring my my authentic way, and they can bring yours, and we find a way to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. You actually kind of get to get get to um, to own the language uh on more equal terms and 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 actually create your own language as well right if you're in a group of five people all from different countries let's say um and you come with a a spanish word and everyone just agrees okay that's the word that we'll use for this thing like you know you you just create a new word because you've forgotten what the english word is for example right um or there's this amazing concept that only has a, a fantastic word for it in Polish and then everybody's like yeah okay cool and you've you've grown you've kind of uh what's the word like you have uh you know essentially the English language has evolved into its own little sociolect between you you as a group yeah I would like to end with a question for you because now that is getting into a very interesting (laughs) area it's a quick late in the conversation but this is i'm excited but anyway so Mm. do you think that it is possible for us and i am talking as a collective the the entire human race can we reach a point in which there there is there is no authority in terms of languages, because I don't think there should be personally, <laughs> um, in which we can bring our own real expression, like that, that's it. Like I'm, I'm bringing some words in Spanish or some words in French or some mm-hmm. words in Polish because I, I, they, they make sense to me. Can we do that? That's an excellent question. Uh some kind of science fiction novel that could have where that could be possible yeah. and if it's possible in science fiction maybe it's possible in real life I don't know <laughs> um I'd like to think I mean I think definitely in some communities in some places that's that's probably already the case yeah. um actually a lot of places I think that's already the case um but it it just i i i do think that there will probably always be someone who is kind of policing how language should be um and i take um just very quickly i'll I'll take norway as an example because in norway um the written language is quite flexible it's quite um uh, it's not as as kind of um, strict, uh, the grammar rules and the, the rules aren't as strict as in English or as in French, where you you kind of, uh, I mean, the, I, I still find it ridiculous that the English language has evolved so much since uh, when was, you know, Shakespearean type, 500 years ago, right? And yet we still have R-I-G-H-T is right and we don't say richt, which is how, which I think back when they said richt, it made sense to write, to spell it like that. Yeah. But we don't, we haven't said that for literally like centuries and centuries. Nobody says that. And uh, we still have this stupid spelling, right? And so in Norway, they, they have these kind of reforms. So every maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years, they will change the allowed spelling of words based on pronunciation and based on the changes in the in the spoken languages. Uh, and I say languages because there's or dialects, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but even there, you still have a lot of people, myself included, sometimes when I'm like, Ugh, 
people saying things wrong, people writing things wrong, you know. Um, so yeah, I think we'll always have some people wanting to police police language. And what's the intention behind that policing? Um, structure. We like uh, things to be in some kind. Of, we li- we like clarity. You know, we like to to know what's right and what's wrong. We like to have a sense of um, some kind of rules, even the people that don't like rules. Um, we like to have a sense of certainty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it is not, I don't like saying this, but th- there is nothing wrong about, well, maybe not policing the language mm. or, or the, well, the, the users, but maybe, um, if it was a little bit more gentle and inclusive, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of policing is okay. But I do have problems mm-hmm. when the policing goes into... Because um, I found I find that there are different, kind, different kinds of policing. There is policing your own people and then yeah. policing other groups of people that are not native and that's where I, I start to find the issue because a language languages have been since always a, a product of merging with other languages mm-hmm. so why are we so set in no this language this language can adopt these terms but they cannot adopt these or can take these but cannot mm-hmm. take these and you saying this is wrong, <laughs> even though for you it does make complete sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I still have some... I guess I don't have a, a, a clear idea of, is it policy, is it good or is it bad? I think I generally, I think it's, it's probably going to be one of those things like... Um, like flowing water it's always going to happen but you don't necessarily have to um let it uh you can just let it wash over you right you can if i'm keeping with this water metaphor right um so it it, it's yeah you can just let it wash over you and then it's like a nice shower you know you don't have to think oh because this person said you can't do that then I have to change the way I speak or I have to change the way I um express myself or I have to limit myself uh, expression um based on it you can just kind of like people are going to have their opinions that's theirs but, yeah it's theirs yeah <laughs> nothing to you, with you to and there'll always be debates and there'll always yeah. be reactions to things and that's natural and it's never going to stop. And it's actually good. From oh, yeah, it's great. Having a debate is where we, well, you know, we move on, right? So yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're going to finish. But before I let you go, where can we find you? And any last message you want to give to our audience? Yeah, so... Um... If you're interested in my uh, language coaching services, you can find me on hedvigsandboot.com. And I'm sure, uh, Maria, you can have that spelled out somewhere. (laughs) It will be all written with the conversation notes and all your links in the website and in the YouTube. Yeah. Everything. Uh, Sandboot is fairly easy to find. So you can find on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. um, And... uh, I am actually in the process right now of producing my own podcast, which mm-hmm. is going to be coming out um, beginning of October, I think, or sometime in October <laughs> is what I'll say. And so I have then another question. Mm. What is the podcast going to be about? What can we expect from that? Yes. Thank you for asking. It's going to be um, actually about... Um, it's going to be primarily aimed at people who are struggling to learn their first, second language. Mm-hmm. So people who've studied uh, some bits of language in, in school, um, most people, most of us have, I think, 
um, but you know, who just haven't been able to make the the next step into being able to hold a conversation or being able to do what they want with the language. Um, and uh, I think it'll be interesting for other people as well in terms of, you know, I'll have guests and hopefully maybe I'll have you as a guest. Um, uh, people who uh, honestly inspire me and uh, hopefully will inspire um, my listeners as well. Um, and uh, yeah, there'll also be some more practical tips and uh, different um, different stories from different people. So, well, I'm excited to. I have to wait until October, but <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. Okay, well, thank you very much for for just coming and having a chat with me. I really enjoyed, and I think we've made very juicy and interesting points. And I would say even the starter of conversations, um, just <laughs> for people to start thinking about certain things. So I am really grateful for that. Thank you so much, Maria. I love that you reached out to me. And um, yeah, I'm uh, so excited that we, we managed to have this conversation. Me too. So I wish you a beautiful day. And yeah, bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs>